everybody, Paul here. Before we get to the podcast, I just need to issue a quick correction. Uh, in the original version of the podcast, in our discussion about Thomas Chatterton Williams and Gorka, our guest Shane Littrell mistakenly said that Thomas Chatterton Williams had started a YouTube channel and interviewed Dave Rubin. Uh, apparently that was incorrect. That never happened. Uh, Shane made a mistake. He was thinking actually of somebody else called John Wood Jr., so we uh, have taken out that section on Shane's request um, and we have apologized uh, to Thomas Chatterton Williams for the mistake and the misrepresentation, which ironically occurred in the context of a discussion about Gorka uh, spreading misinformation about Thomas Chatterton Williams. So yeah, the guy cannot catch a break apparently and uh, we apologize. Anyway, here is the podcast. everyone and welcome to more of a comment than a question. Um, I'm Rachel Hartman and with me as always is my brilliant and hilarious uh, co-host Paul Connor as well as bullshitting expert Shane Littrell. Shane, could you tell that I was bullshitting just now? <laughs> I didn't. Say, if you did, it was really good to me. Um, uh, it was convincing. I don't have enough experience, I guess, to know whether or not you're bullshitting. Um, so you're, you're very effective at it. <laughs> Great. Um, so, yeah, Paul, are you happy that you got some sort of dig at you after all of these, um, you know, episodes where I just didn't come up with anything creative? Wait, what do you mean, dig? I didn't. Wait, <laughs> well, you were, was... you, you, are you trying to say you were bullshitting? Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, my goodness. I didn't pick up on that, <laughs> I didn't pick up on yeah. that at all. <laughs> Yes, uh, uh, not so brilliant after all. Um, <laughs> well, from from one of the past episodes, I heard, aren't you just the assistant anyway? So are you? Touche, <laughs> touche. No, um, I liked it. I liked it. I'll give it like a four and a half out of ten. As out far as like <laughs> intro uh, trolls go, but you know that's an improvement. Because, like, you were kind of NA most other weeks. So um, we're heading in the right direction yeah. now. I'll so, keep working yeah. on it. Um, I forget if you asked me how I am doing. Uh, but no, in I case don't care. you did. <laughs> <laughs> well, in case any listeners are interested in how I'm doing, I'm doing just fine. Just fine. It's very, it's very hot and humid here uh, in, uh, in New York, Brooklyn. But I'm learning that. Like, I can cope with that. It's not too bad. Um, yeah, so you referenced oh. our guest as, <laughs> as, as bullshitting expert. Do we, do we want to expound on who we're actually talking to? Um, yes. And also, how are you? Uh, thank you for asking. I'm okay. Uh, it's been a pretty busy week at Cloud Research. Um, we're finishing up our call for proposals for our uh cloud research grant where you can I'll do my plug mm. here uh you can win up to $2,500 for collecting mm. data on uh, cloud research and so that is the deadline's coming up on that I don't remember if it's July 31st or August 1st but 
Um, I should know that. Huh. Um, but yeah, go ahead and hopefully we'll release this before then. So you'll have a day to submit any listeners who are interested. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe yeah. I, my wife's in Mexico, so I'm like full-time single parent uh, right now. So I'm not sure when I'll be able to get this out, but what right, if, well, if we just, if we just do a flawless job with the pod, no pressure, if we just <laughs> like, don't need any editing at all, there's a chance. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So as I've been mostly working on that and, uh, just a lot of other cloud research stuff, it's been really busy, um, but fun. It's great feeling useful and soon I'll be mostly back to working on my dissertation and feeling useless. So yeah, I'm enjoying the last few weeks of summer. Um, all right. So let's get to our guest. So Shane Latrell is, I always, I, I've been thinking that his last name is pronounced Littrell and, and I learned a few minutes ago that it's Littrell. So now I have to kind of um, teach myself the right pronunciation. You can call me whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, so he's a cognitive scientist, um, postdoc at Columbia and soon at University of Miami. And he's done a lot of research on bullshitting, which... We'll talk more about so that's all i've got chain anything else you want to <laughs> tell our listeners about to start off with um i really love cloud research and um, this is not a paid advertisement but you know that's <laughs> i support any any work with them because i think it's it's a great product that saves me money so yeah great. i noticed you... that in the in the in your papers you you use cloud research is that how you guys met <laughs> no uh, no, I think I think I forget how. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know. I started listening to your podcast, and then I got an email from Rachel about. I was uh, trying uh, to put. SPSB. I was trying to put together a symposium uh, for SPSB, but it didn't work yeah. out. So we're not going to yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I was yeah. I was very I was very polite and uh, that I couldn't do it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Did, uh, have you guys submitted? anything for Atlanta? I haven't. Um, I'll probably s- maybe get around to submitting something for one of the pre-conferences later on, but mm-hmm. like, honestly, I'm not really working on much right now other than my dissertation. And I, I don't know, hopefully I'll still get funding to go because mm-hmm. Kurt's lab has a lot of money and, uh, wait, aren't submissions cl- closed? They're closed for the main conference, but pre-conference submissions are going. Yeah. I don't know if they're even open yet, but they're usually later in the, like in the fall. Gotcha. How about you, Shane? I've never in my life been to SPSB. I only ever do like uh, like cognitive conferences, like like, um, SJDM and Psychonomics. And there's one in Canada called uh, CSBBCS, which is the Canadian cognitive science and behavior it's something with canada <laughs> i always forget because it's so long um but that i mean i i considered um going to spsp because i know there are some uh at least one or two people in social that uh, study bullshit related stuff um but but yeah I, i've never actually been yeah how about you paul have you submitted anything yeah yeah actually like a symposium and then a whole other 
presentation that could end up as a talk or a poster or anything like that. I actually just want to go to Atlanta. I have two good friends there. Uh, and this would be a good excuse. And yeah. So yeah. put something together. Symposium actually came together relatively easily. I mean, in the past, I've had similar experiences, it sounds like to to you, where it's just it's so awkward to try to get a symposium together when everybody else is sort of doing the same thing at the same time. And I had this one like kind of negative experience once where a, a, a more senior academic sort of agreed to be in the symposium I was putting together and sort of committed to doing so via email. And then, you know, like we had this momentum and I was saying, yeah, this person's going to be part of it, communicating to other people. And then they just pulled out because they like found a better symposium and they were like, oh, I just think my research is a better fit for this other symposium. And I was like, dude, like, these other people are participating on the understanding that you're participating and like, and not only that, but <laughs> SPSP eventually decided that their work was a good fit with the work that I was going to present in the symposium. Cause they put us in the same single speaker symposium, mm-hmm. ironically. <laughs> so their symposium got rejected. Our symposium got rejected. And it, this person and I ended up talking in the same symp- symposium, even though they left my symposium in theory, because their work wasn't a good fit. Anyway, it's awkward. It's super awkward. But I had a much better time this year uh, putting together and, like, yeah, just people sort of said yes, nobody pulled out, and, yeah, we were able to pull it together. And I think it has a chance. But then, like, it must be super competitive. They must get so many applications for people for yeah. symposium. It kind of has, the like, like, a high school feel to it of, like, you got to find – got to be popular and you know find people that like you and you know get together in a group and like yeah i was just i, mean, I was never a cool kid and <laughs> still am me not. either nobody's ever invited me, me to be in their <laughs> symposium no actually that's wrong this year i got my first ever invite to be in somebody else's symposium nice and, and you got was, to turn so, them down yeah i i did because i was already i was already organizing uh this other one and also the stuff that they wanted me to talk on was just work that like it's from like years ago like published mm-hmm. years ago and that i'm not really that focused on anymore so it would have been it just would have been weird to be presenting that work but yeah um most of the time mm-hmm. yeah it's me trying to beg the popular kids to <laughs> play with me but yeah anyway, anyway. Let's get to bullshitting. Um, so Shane, tell us a little bit about bullshitting and like, so what do you, I know you sent us a few papers and I could try to bullshit my way into saying that I read them and in, in great detail, but I'm not going to do that. I did skim one of them though. Um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not much preparation. I spent a lot of time preparing my joke for the like beginning of the pod, so I didn't really have that much time left for, you know, actually doing the work. Anyway, um, tell us about time well spent. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's uh, it's it's not just amazing that you spent a lot of time on that joke. It's it's amazing that you spent a lot of time on that joke for, you know, the outcome of it. <laughs> I know, I know, it's really not good. It's that's okay. You know, I never wanted to be a podcast host anyway. Paul made me do it. So here I am. Um, so are you, do you work, is your work more focused on people who do bullshitting or on perceiving bullshit? Because I know you have that big paper that's sort of like both of them, uh, yeah. you know, trying to bullshit the bullshitter. So yeah. 
Where, what is I tried, well, to, to make you feel better, I haven't read either of those papers in, I don't know, over a year. So one of them I skimmed really quickly to like earlier today. I was like, I sit the papers. Uh, they're probably not going to read them. Um, no judgment. It's just I wouldn't either. Um, but I was like, I'm going to ask you questions. So I skip through it real quick. <laughs> I read them. I've actually been feeling like we need to do more prep for this podcast. Like, cause I feel like it's, it's getting to the point where it's like, I, I think our better episodes are when we do prep. It's true. Honest. Yeah. And I kind of just think like, if we're going to keep doing this, we should do it properly or a little bit properly. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't just, anyway. It shouldn't just be a joke. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'll take it more serious. We, we, we talk about this. <laughs> Let's take bullshit more seriously. Come on. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So to answer your question, I kind of, so the, if you want to call this a field, um, this, this area of study kind of launched around 2015 when, um, Gord Pennycook had this paper on the reception and detection of pseudoprofound bullshit. And see, I originally, let me give you some biography that you don't care about here. <laughs> originally I wanted to be a pediatrician for some reason. Um, I think it's because I watched way too much ER and I eventually talked myself out of it because everybody on that show ER would die. And I'm like, I don't want to work in a hospital and a helicopter fall on me for no reason. Um, and then I also took organic chemistry. So I talked myself out of that and I got my, uh, uh, first degree. I got my one degree in journalism for no reason other than the credits and the other in psychology as an undergrad. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. So I got a degree in IO uh, masters and then worked for a restaurant company for a while. And then I decided to go back to school and I got, I was like, I want to get my PhD, but I don't know what in, cause that's a great plan. Right. Uh, so I got my master's in experimental psych and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study. I knew it was kind of cognitive, but I don't know if you guys have ever been to a cognitive conference, like nothing against psychonomics. It's just, there's a lot of this at psychonomics. You walk around, you look at the posters and it, not all of it, but a, there's a good deal of research there that is just so esoteric and just specialized that it's just, well, I'm trying not to cuss, but it, it's, who cares? Like, you know, the uh, synaptic response of megahertz of the 115, you know, region of the 225, like, who I, I don't care. Right. So I knew I didn't want to do that kind of research. And then that paper came out in 2015 so when I was working on my master's and it was sort of like the mothership calling me home. I was like, this, this is what I want. Cause my overriding, like if there were to be a research question of just that applies to everything I'm interested in, it's why smart people believe stupid things. Um, so I read that paper and when I was applying to PhD programs, um, I saw it. So Gord went to Waterloo and uh, one of his supervisors with uh, Dr. Jonathan Fugel saying, so when I was applying to PhD programs, just on a whim at the last minute, I applied to Waterloo. I'm like, I live in Tennessee. It's all the way in Canada. They're not going to let me in. And somehow I got in. Um, and I studied in the lab that Gord graduated from under his old supervisor. So I felt like this was just a great fit for me. But what Gord did was he was studying originally what why people fall or are what we call are more receptive to bullshit and i'm really interested in that and i've taken a look at that but uh, there was also I'm, I'm sure you guys have experienced this when you were in graduate school and you were starting like your dissertation research every great idea that you have you find out like a week later somebody else has already done it 
like, oh, I've got this great idea. It'd be great. Somebody's done it. So I went through that whole phase for several months where I just couldn't come up with anything that had not been done. And then it just dawned on me one day that we were only looking at this from one side. So if you look at this as, as in, in terms of like communication, we're only looking at the receiver and not the sender. And so I started to think, well, you know, I, it, it's important to know why people fall for it, but I'm also interested in knowing why people transmit it in the first place, because we're only, you need both halves of that nut, I guess, or crack that nut. Yeah. My, my analogy is really bad, but you know what I mean? We're, we're yeah. looking at, we need to look at both sides. So I started getting really interested in, in bullshitters. Um, and this was, you know, I started my, um, PhD in 2017, um, which was the year that, you know, Trump took office. So, so there was a lot, a heightened, like, uh, uh, bullshit was more salient than it had ever been before. Um, and I've also done, I also do research on narcissism and overconfidence. So it's like all of this, he was like the perfect person to be in office to inspire me at the time. Cause I had stuff on narcissism, overconfidence, bullshitting, um, but anyway, so that's how I got into it. And growing up in the South, and I know this this phrase is common other places, but especially in the South, I always heard, you know, you can't bullshit a bullshitter. And I wanted to see if that was true. That's my Southern accent. That was um, perfect. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to see if that were true, because to me, you know, on, on one hand, it intuitively makes sense. Like a lot of people think, okay, well, you know, n- no offense to um car salesman out there, but there's the stereotype that used car salesmen and in some cases might be a little, you know, uh, we'll just say really good at selling, you know, sub quality cars. Um, <laughs> so it's that, that kind of, you know, well, they should know all the tricks, you know, you can't con a con man because the con man knows, knows how to con people. They'll be able to see it and pick up on it. And there was some, like a little bit of a sketch of research in like the lying literature that suggested um, under some conditions that perhaps people who were, who told more lies, pro, pro, what they call prolific liars, or were better at telling lies, were also better at spotting lies. Overall, the research shows that it's kind of 50 50. Um, people who lie a lot necessarily aren't necessarily better at picking up on it, but there's some that showed a little bit of a something. So I wanted to apply that to bullshitting because bullshitting and lying are different. Um, they're fundamentally different on a, um, a definitional um um, level, but they're also different. And, you know, which is one of the things that I, I did in my first study was trying to tease those things about liars versus bullshitters. But but anyway, my rambling answer, (laughs) my rambling (laughs) bullshitty answer is that I want I was interested in both. So, you know, um, Gord has kind of moved on to misinformation and fake news research, but I still think there's a lot of work to be done in the bullshit research because it, it is misinformation and it is disinformation depending on how you're looking at it. Um, but it's very prevalent. And I just think this is, this is an area that needs to grow and I'm happy to be a part of, of doing that. So anyway, yeah, that probably didn't even actually answer your question. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was great. Um, could you, so I know from skimming your paper, um, <laughs> that there are, there's sort of like two categorizations for different kinds of bullshitters. Yep. Um, so can you say a little bit about what those are and sort of the distinction between them? Sure. So I, I dove into the, the research, like there's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of stuff on bullshit and philosophy. Well, I'm, you know, there's probably a lot of bullshit in philosophy, but I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> papers in philosophy that have been written on bullshit. Um, the first one that first one that I'm aware of that probably 
started it was Frankfurt's on bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. Anytime I'm on Twitter and somebody wants to tell me how wrong I am about my research, they'll always invoke Frankfurt. Oh, I don't know if you've read Frankfurt's on bullshit. <laughs> and every every time they tweet something like that, I know they have not read it. It's just one. Of, they're bullshitting me. I I jokingly said that that was a case of meta bullshitting, where it's people bullshit <laughs> about having read bullshitting research. But Frankfurt <laughs> read that paper, and that was in 1986, and hardly anybody read it. It only got 30 citations, roughly, until he re-released it in tw- 2005 as a book. And so it was like a tiny like coffee table book. Uh, uh, he re- basically just re-released the paper in tiny book form. And then it was in bookstores everywhere. I remember back then, like in tw- 2005, I saw it in like Barnes & Noble and thought it was kind of funny. And then a lot of people read it. And then he got like... I think seven, 700 citations just out of releasing it as a book. But then Gord read it too. And that's what he used to do his 2015 paper. Um, and now it's kind of, it's kind of everywhere. So anyway, <clears throat> I read that, but there's also been a lot of other people that have criticized Frankfurt's definitions of bullshitting. So what he said that bullshitting was, um, was that it is, um, I'm blanking out. <laughs> right, what he said bullshitting was, but it's, it's a way to, it's a communication style that's that's intended to manipulate people um, in a way that falls just short of lying. And it's done with uh, kind of a, a lack of regard for the truth. And um, that was an interesting definition. His paper is, his paper is decent. It's kind of rambling in places, but uh, other people have kind of criticized that. So I, I read like a bunch of stuff and, kind of compiled it all together into what I saw as like two categories of bullshitting. Um, And it took me a while to come up with a name that had like, like consonants, like pervasive and evasive. Like I probably spent more time on the names than I did the actual lit review for that. But anyway, so what I saw was two main types of bullshitting. So there's uh, persuasive, not pervasive, persuasive bullshitting. And that's kind of like, the classic everyday bullshitting. Like if I asked you to describe what bullshitting is, what you would tell me would most likely fit my definition of persuasive. So it's um, bullshitting somebody in an effort to impress, persuade, or, or fit in with them by uh, exaggerating, embellishing, or otherwise kind of stretching the truth about your knowledge, your ideas, your competencies, um, your skills, because, because you want to impress them or, persuade them to your side of a position or just, you know, socially fit in with them better. Right. Then there's this other form of bullshitting um, that I got from philosopher named Tom Carson that we call evasive bullshitting. And this is most people would not think of this if you asked them about bullshitting uh, or to come up with a definition. But once I explain it to people, they always go, Oh yeah, I see what that means. So here's an example of that. It's basically when you're asked a question that you don't want to answer because um, bullshitters don't want to lie. So this is always falling short of lying. Um, they respond evasively by sub- what I say, what I call substituting non-relevant truths um, in place of a direct response in a way to avoid social harm to, uh, to that person or to other people. And I, I can give examples of these too, because it, it might clear things up because I like to ramble. So you can think of persuasive bullshitting. Um, here's a great example from everyone's favorite Trump. So he's giving a talk once, um, a, a speech. I think he was still in office when he gave this speech. And he's describing an interaction he had with Justin Trudeau. So this was back when they were renegotiating NAFTA. 
I forget what it's called now, um, but they were re- renegotiating trade between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. So Trudeau comes into the office. There was no, just to be clear, the fact is we did not have a trade deficit with, with Canada, but Trump was trying to renegotiate um, by leveraging this claim that we did have a trade deficit with Canada. So Trump comes into the office and like the first thing, or I'm sorry, Trudeau comes in the office and like the first thing Trump said to him is, uh, we need to, we need to eliminate this trade deficit. And Trudeau responds something along the lines of, um, Mr. President, there is no trade deficit. Yes, there is. There is a trade deficit. We need to, we need to take care of that. So after he, Trump tells that story in the, to the speech he's giving, he then admits he had no idea if there was a trade deficit or not. He was just saying it to manipulate Trudeau. Uh, and, and get leverage in the negotiations. So that fits kind of like what a Frank Ferdian definition of bullshitting is. It's he was saying something in order to persuade him, and he didn't care whether or not what he said was saying was true. Um, evasive bullshitting would be like this is probably crass, but I call it the uh, uh, "Do these pants make my ass look fat?" question. So let's say your your partner comes in and they get a horrible haircut or whatever. And they ask you like, Hey, do you like my new haircut? Or, Hey, do these pants make my butt look big or whatever? If, if you don't like it and you respond, honestly, you're, you're probably going to pay a social cost there. (laughs) Like it might involve you sleeping on the couch for the rest of the month or whatever. So you don't want to hurt that person's feelings. So you might substitute a non-relevant truth with like, uh, you always look beautiful to me, honey. That doesn't actually answer their question, but in their minds, it satisfies them in a way that they move on to a different topic. Um, and I can give you a real world example of this. Cause this is in, in my life. This is when I first ever noticed something like this. When I was a little kid, we went to Nashville for Christmas and my grandmother gave my aunt uh, like this hideous sweater as a gift. Cause you know, grandparents, they're God love them. They're, they're not, you know, usually they don't usually keep abreast of like the latest uh, fashion trends. So she gives her this sweater that was just, it was just God awful. And uh, my aunt opens it up in front of my grandmother and my grandmother, uh, Meemaw, as we call them in the South, she's like, uh, uh, well, do you like it? And my aunt looks at it for a a split second. She pauses and says, oh my God, this is so soft. Feel this material. And like my cousins, she's like, y'all feel this. This is so soft. Oh, where did you find this? And my grandmother's like, oh, I found it at this store. She's like, oh, thank you so much. And left never answered the question but she substituted all these non-relevant responses like oh this is so soft oh where did you get this to make my grandmother feel satisfied that she had answered it and she moves on so that's evasive bullshitting you see it a lot from politicians where they don't want to answer a question but they also don't want to lie because they know they might there might be hearings about something later oh there's also i will say this isn't in my my studies but i am planning a study to look at this there's another aspect of bullshitting that I would call social bullshitting. So this would be bullshitting that's done to entertain rather than to mislead. So it's done to kind of um, establish, maintain, or improve social relationships. So you can think like if you go to the go to a pub after work with your friends and you're telling like these tall tales, everybody kind of knows it didn't really happen that way, but everybody's laughing and you're doing it to entertain. So there is social bullshitting, which my my research right now does not address. Cool. That was actually uh, on my list of questions was to ask okay. you about whether you've considered that um, motivation. Cause I've come ac- across that a lot is like 
people just telling stories and like, yeah, like you said, like everyone knows that it's not really true. I don't know. I think I'd be interested in like people's perceptions if they actually are enjoying the story or if they're kind of like, ugh you know, this guy again with his made up stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it depends on the context and that's, that's one of the issues with studying bullshitting and and even studying lying is for, for us to know for sure, like hundred percent for sure, whether or not somebody is bullshitting versus lying would, would require us to be able to read people's minds. Right. Because the distinction between bullshitting and lying is, well, I'll I'll just clarify it now because I don't think that I did earlier. Lying is getting, trying to get, you know, the truth when you're a liar, you know what the truth is, capital T truth, whatever that is. Um, And you are intentionally trying to get somebody to believe a falsehood, right? You believe, you believe P and you're trying to get them to believe not P, right? Bullshitting is misleading some way in a way that falls just short of lying. So you're communicating and what you're saying, it might be the truth that might not, you don't know, or what you're saying might be meaningful or clear, or it might not. You're saying things because it's mainly about impression management. So like I said, you want to impress that person, you want to fit in with them, or like if you're a politician, you want to persuade them to your, excuse me, your side of an issue. And so the goal is not to get them to believe something false. The goal is just to mislead or impress them. It's sort of, I, I want to say it's like truth plus, but that, that might be kind of misleading. So it's, it's embellished. It's not quite accurate, um, but it, it's done w- without lying. So it's all about context. So in the situation of like social bullshitting, when I define it, like operationally, I'm defining it in a way where it's a group of friends and everybody kind of has this implicit understanding that the person's just telling stories because we all want to laugh and we're entertaining. Now that's different from like, you know, um, Rick at work or, you know, the, the guy in the corner office, it's always coming to the water cooler and telling these tall tales that he's doing because he thinks that he's impressing you. And there's not that mutual implicit understanding that this is being done for entertainment. He, he's doing it because he's, he's a bullshitter and he wants to impress you. He wants you to think that he's awesome, that, you know, he's great at his job, that he's really athletic, whatever. That's a, that's a different context. Um, and those are easy to recognize. And th- this is the thing is when I, when I study bullshitters and what people think of bullshitters, the, the irony here is that I guess I'm kind of focusing on bad bullshitters because if a person's a really good bullshitter, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. So like earlier, you know, with your amazing joke or whatever, like, <laughs> like I, I, I didn't know that you were joking. So either it's a bad joke or you're really good at bullshitting. <laughs> So like if somebody's good at it, you never know the people that we're able to spot as a big, as big bullshitters are the people that are terrible at it. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was just way too plausible what she was saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that I was here for what may later become the last <laughs> podcast ever. <laughs> Cause the next, the next episode will be about how you guys had this big fight and now you you've launched your own separate uh, podcasts and I'm so, kidding. Can I, Quick question. So sure. um, the original Penny Cook paper was titled something about pseudo-profound yeah, bullshit. Yeah, on the right? reception so, and addiction of pseudo-profound bullshit. So Basically, Deepak, I, Deepak Chopra level stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, this is what I was going to ask. So when I hear that phrase, pseudo-profound, I think Deepak Chopra. I also think mm-hmm. of, like, the SoCal 
pokes and postmodernist yeah. writing where it's just a jumble of words and it doesn't actually mean anything. Like there's all these postmodernism generators online that you can go to. Yeah. They're re- actually really fun to play around with and they create just such plausible, uh, like believable examples of this writing that you're like, ah, oh, right. It is- yeah, yeah. And uh, so, but when I read your paper, I was like, oh, what, is this, this seems different. Like, so talking about Trump style bullshitting or like a uh, used car salesman style bullshitting seems quite different to that. Yep. So where, where does in, in your taxonomy, where does the pseudo profound stuff fit in? Yeah. So this is what I try to do in, in my research now is, and this is what I think is, is necessary for, uh, for this area of research as we go forward is being really careful about separating bullshitting the act from bullshit the the unit of information if we want to call it that so bullshitting if we were if i was just to give a really general definition of bullshitting bullshitting is basically utilizing bullshit for some sort of personal gain right um whether persuasively evasively or socially for the entertainment value but you can do that with different types of bullshit so what penny cook um focused on was pseudo profound bullshit so he was uh, he fo- really focused in on um, Deepak Chopra's tweets, which he has. He has some some great ones. Uh, uh, one of my favorites is um, "Attention and inattention are the mechanics of manifestation." Uh, I think that was like I, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> like, but that was one of his tweets. Duh. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so what? Obvious. If you're yeah. light, if you you know if you get it, you get it. Exactly. You're you're bullshit receptive if you. Get it. It's hard um, to explain, so guys. What what uh, what Gord did was he based that sort of on um, Frankfurt's book, the On Bullshit book, and just you know this is interesting. A lot of people that you know come at me with, but Frankfurt uh, don't realize that Frankfurt's original bullshit paper slash book was kind of a polemic against postmodernist philosophy. Hmm. Um, he didn't really spell that out quite until uh because there's another book called on truth of course i have them both on my desk here um where he actually gives a much better definition of bullshit in that book than he did in on bullshit and he explains that he was talking about uh the creeping influence of postmodernist philosophy in philosophy because it it's a complete disregard for truth and reality right so when when gord made the uh the bullshit receptivity scale he used statements that come from those types of generators, right? Those random algorithmic generators. And those actually represent, um, he didn't say it in his paper. I kind of made this connection in in one of my papers from last year, that it's actually two different types of, it represents two different types of bullshit. You have the Frankfurtian bullshit, which is uh, speaking, you're bullshitting without a concern for the truth. And those phrases, because they're randomly, they're randomly assembled, but they're they're assembled in this correct syntactic order. So you know the nouns, verbs, and all that are in the right place, but they're semantically meaningless. Since they're randomly constructed, there's no concern for the truth there. So that meets the definition of or part of Frankfurt's definition of bullshit. There's another philosopher named Jerry Cohen who wrote a follow-up, a critique of Frankfurt's paper. And it was called, I think it was called uh, Deeper into Bullshits something like that. Uh, there's so many papers out there that just have the word bullshit in me. I kind of get lost, but Cohen has this idea of, um, and he kind of academic bullshit, but bullshit of, uh, that takes the form of what he calls unclarifiable unclarity. 
So this is saying things with a bunch of jargon and buzzwords and whatever that don't mean anything. So he was also talking about um, kind of academic writing. He, he specifically used the example of academic writing, but we can also see this in like, uh, like business bullshit when CEOs, you know, just give a speech that's just peppered with, with jargon. So <clears throat> what he was saying is that sometimes people communicate, they're bullshitting in a way to impress you or persuade you by throwing in all these words that if you sat there and thought about them, they really wouldn't make a lot of sense, but superficially, like intuitively, they're impressive. Um, and so he, you know, he made the example of postmodernist academic publishings and, and just academic publishings in general. So the pseudo profound bullshit also fits that definition. So it's, since it's randomly assembled, there's no concern for the truth, but since it uses all these randomly assembled buzzwords, that in, in, to, in totality, they don't mean anything either. So they were also assembled without a concern for meaning. But there's other types of bullshit. Like, there, like I said, there's uh, what, what I would probably call corporate bullshit or organizational bullshit, which is not profound. And it's not, it's not intended to seem profound. It's intended to seem impressive and persuasive. Uh, there's also scientific bullshit. There's actually a paper. There's a scale um, yeah, I don't know if you saw this when you skimmed my paper. But I used that that scale too on scientific bullshit, and that is randomly assembled statements that are that are meant to look like they're conveying like scientific facts, but they're kind of nonsensical. You you would kind of have to. I, I think for some of them, you probably have to have a PhD to realize whether or not they made sense. But it's got weird, just these weird like Kirchhoff's equation of subjunctory inflationary you know, cosmology, you know, all these words put together. And, and they're also not meant to be taken as profound. They're meant to be taken as truthful. And, and then you have fake news, which be, can be considered a type of bullshit that is constructed in a way to seem accurate because its intention is also to impress you. Its intention is to go viral. Um, but it, it's also not profound. So there's different types of bullshit, but when, when the bullshit's used, it's used in kind of a similar way. It's either to impress or persuade somebody, or it's, it's, it's used to avoid um, uh, some sort of social cost of some sort. But the mechanisms by which people use them are the same. They're just using different types of bullshit. And uh, just to continue talking, because I'll, I'll just ramble for the next six hours, uh, we have a paper under review right now, because I was interested in kind of in the question that you're getting to, like, well, there's different types of bullshit do we evaluate them the same way? So there's a lot of the research out there um, in, in this area looks at things from what was like a dual process model. So we, we either evaluate and think about things and make decisions from a type one perspective, like it's intuitive, it's associative, it's very quick, or we engage in like type two processing, which is more reflective and analytical and we spend more time on it. So a lot of the early research on, on bullshit reception and misinformation made the claim that um, people fall for bullshit because they're just not thinking enough. They're not engaging in, in cognitive reflection. But there have been other studies about cognitive reflection and, and tests that we use in, in that research. Like one of them is called the cognitive reflection test, which I like to jokingly say is the, the other CRT that people like to argue about on Twitter. But the cognitive reflection test was originally thought to measure cognitive reflection. It, it does not, by the way. So higher, so people that are more receptive to bullshit would always score low on it. Um, but uh, what we what we now know is that it's not just that people don't think; um, it's that some people are just 
I don't want to be insulting, but they're just bad thinkers. <laughs> like, so when they do engage in these kind of reflective processes, uh, I can't believe I just said processes, uh, processes. Um, <laughs> I've got a whole other rant about that. Uh, but when they do engage in these more reflective processes, they're making logical fallacies and, and just engaging in like just errors in their reasoning that cause them to arrive at the wrong conclusion. So this paper that I have under um, review right now with, with my co-authors is we gave people scientific bullshit and fake news and pseudo-profound bullshit. And there's like five different studies in the paper, but we manipulated whether it, we also manipulated the source. So we manipulated whether it came from an authoritative source or from an anonymous source. And what we found is, and oh, and it was based on a paradigm that's called, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the illusion of explanatory depth. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's basically the idea that we think what we understand things better than we actually do. And when you get people to really sit there and reflect on how well they understand something, they realize they don't actually understand it as well as they did. It's like, like the you ask, task of like having someone explain how a toilet works. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, that or like a helicopter. You ask somebody, hey, do you know how a helicopter works on, on a scale of one to ten? Like, oh, pff, yeah, helicopter. That's like a like a seven or eight. Come on, that's Why simple. Why would anyone claim to understand? Yeah, I don't that. know. <laughs> I don't know. That that was in uh, that was in the original paper. Uh, yeah. uh, but then you ask them, okay, well, explain to me in as much detail as possible how a helicopter works. And they sit there, and while they're doing it, they have this illusion of the depth that they can explain something, kind of punctured or or uh, taken away. And then you ask them again to rate, well, how well do you understand this? And um, they, their, their rating goes down. It goes from like maybe an eight originally, and now it's like a four. Okay. So we did this with um, bullshit and, and fake news and scientific and super profound. We had them rate the items, and then we had them explain to us what they mean in as much detail as possible, and then rate them again. So what happened was for pseudo-profound bullshit, people would read it and they would rate it. But once they tried to explain what, you know, hidden meaning transforms unparalleled abstract beauty, <laughs> when they try to explain what that means, they realize that it doesn't really mean anything. So overall, the mean scores on that came down. So using this guided detail-focused reflection, they became less receptive to the bullshit. But when it came to fake news and scientific bullshit there was no change like what they they rated it one way they thought about it the ratings didn't really change um which i'm not quite sure <laughs> why why that happened i have some ideas that we have in the paper as to why i don't want to um plant my flag firmly on anything yet oh and the other the other finding was that regardless of the type of bullshit if it comes from a, a perceived authority, um, it's always more convincing than if it comes from an anonymous source, even after you reflect on it. Um, but I, I think to, to get to your point, to, to make this ramble, you know, to finally bring this home, <laughs> um, I think there's a difference when people are evaluating something that's like more pseudo metaphysical, like it, it's it's kind of open to interpretation, like that inaction or attention and inattention are the mechanics of manifestation. You can, it's not really a factual, I mean, it's kind of a factual claim, but it's using all these, these buzzwords and possibilities. And it's about like kind of spiritual type stuff that, that is open for interpretation. 
But if you see something that I would say is pseudo-factual instead of pseudo-metaphysical, like a fake news headline or uh, scientific bullshit or something, that's making a, it, it's giving the appearance of making a factual claim. So in people's heads, that's not necessarily as open to interpretation. So you either accept it or you don't. Um, so anyway, so the point of this paper was to show that people seem to evaluate different types of bullshit differently. So these interventions that, that people suggest, like the, the intervention of just make them think more and, and that'll reduce it, um, may not necessarily work in all, in all situations. So we probably have to adjust our approach um, to getting people to not fall for bullshit, uh, just based on the type of bullshit that it is. It's very long, long-winded <laughs> response. Sorry. Yeah, it's not. It's not completely clear to me. Um, Great. That means how, I just bullsh- bullshit. No, you. <laughs> no, that was good. It's just like, like when it comes to scientific bullshit. I guess I'd want to maybe see examples, but it seems like that actually is just lying. Like how, like if you're bullshitting about like a scientific phenomenon that isn't real. Like, aren't you just lying about it? No, because again, the bullshit versus lying uh, has to do with the intention of the person. So pseudo, excuse me, bullshit can be communicated without a person bullshitting. So this is why part of part of why I try to separate these things in my um, in my research. So bullshitting is an intentional act, right? Mm-hmm. So you can bullshit somebody and they believe it, right? So maybe they read like, you know, some, some COVID conspiracy theory on Twitter or some alternative medicine bullshit. And that person believes it. Like they have a genuine belief that, okay, that seems true to me because they're very bullshit receptive. And then because they are like concerned for others or they want to inform other people, they then share that with other people. Um, so they're spreading bullshit, but they're not bullshitting because they actually believe it. And they think that it's true no, information. No, that makes sense. But like the first, the original person who is intentionally bullshitting, let's say, you know, about some homeopathic medicine or whatever yeah. that they kind of know isn't true, isn't real, doesn't work, whatever. If um, that, yeah, that's, that's the main, that's the main uh, point there. If they don't know that it's true, they could be somebody that came up with like they, they could be um, what's her name like Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, and because she's she's admitted in interviews before that she doesn't necessarily the stuff she promotes and that she says are awesome and it's gonna you know this this vagina smelling candle is gonna like uh, realign your chakras or whatever. Um, she's a, she's kind of admitted in interviews before that she doesn't necessarily know like the efficacy of a lot of a lot of the stuff it could be efficacious and it, it might not be but she's there to promote it and mm-hmm. she's 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 there to 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 kind of be a, the salesman there if she knew for a fact that it it didn't work and it was harmful that would be lying but if she has no idea whatsoever and she's just you know bullshitting to try to sell more products or make you know make that money then that's that's bullshitting and this that's why i said in in a lot of ways, if we're talking about like a more ecologically valid test of bullshitting versus lying, to be completely sure, we'd have to be able to read people's minds. But when we test it, like uh, in, in the lab, and by the lab I mean on Qualtrics, um, <laughs> the the lab of of MTurk, scientific bullshit is constructed in the same way that pseudo profound bullshit is. So it's randomly constructed. Mm-hmm. 
So there's there's no lying there because there's no attempt to communicate truth. Um, you know, and and in that, you know, randomly these at some point, if we ran the generator a million times, maybe it'll produce some truthful, a few truthful phrases. But it's not trying to communicate truth or meaning. So it is bullshit. And people are more receptive to that. But that's not necessarily um when I study people that are receptive to bullshit of, of that type, I'm not necessarily making any claims about the ways in which other people might communicate scientific bullshit to them. That makes if sense. that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. But I, but I can do that. Like there's this, I've got all these ideas for studies. Now that I'm, I'm, I'm about to get back into uh, the, the research that I love. There's a show on Netflix called bullshit. And I haven't watched it yet because I canceled Netflix because I only watch Netflix for Cobra Kai and strange, uh, strange things and uh, stranger things. And I'm not going to renew my subscription until September when Cobra Kai comes out. But anyway, so there's, they have this show called bullshit. And from what I understand, part of the show is like one person is trying to bullshit another person. And if they're successful, like they get money or move on to the next round or whatever. And I thought that might make like a great, uh, like more ecologically valid, not completely, but more ecologically valid stimuli in a study to see like if people to really test whether or not people are um, that are more bullshit receptive to the stuff that we put on paper, like the pseudo profound stuff versus like more conversational bullshitting, like what is done in this, uh, in this show. I thought, I think that'll be really interesting to look at, but uh, I'll have to, you know, cough up the $15 to get Netflix and record some clips first. <laughs> Maybe that can include that in a grant proposal, like a Netflix subscription. <laughs> so I'm just sitting here trying to think about how a helicopter works. <laughs> <laughs> are, so, are you are you less confident now than you were before <laughs> that you understand it? Uh, I would just say something about like you know uh, some kind of fossil fuel combusting and firing pistons, and those pistons somehow turning. The blades. Yeah. I think most people realize at the end that their understanding is, I don't know, man, the, the blades go around that goes up. And that's, <laughs> that's about the extent they understand it. What else do you need to know, really? I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, the, the, it sounds to me like, um, you know, people study this because it's seen as a social problem. Uh, but it almost sounds like, you know, it, if every intervention is on the side of the perceiver, uh, then the distinctions between types of bullshit and bullshit versus lying or bullshit versus somebody that's telling you something not true, even though they might actually believe it. So they're not yeah. even bullshitting or lying, but they're still telling you something that's not true. They don't really matter so much because from the point of the view of the perceiver, uh, all you really need to be doing is trying to figure out what's true and spotting spotting things that aren't true, regardless of whether somebody's lying to you or bullshitting you or telling you honestly something that's not true. So do yeah. you think, like, um, is there anything, like, from the perceiver's side and from the idea of, like, potential interventions and, like, actually dealing with the problem of bullshitting in society that um, sort of has come out of the bullshitting literature yeah so uh, to your point it's kind of it's two different questions right so i combined the two questions in my can you bullshit a bullshitter paper which uh to get back to that yes you can um 
but it, bullshitters versus bullshit receptivity. So it's what I call bullshit frequency, bullshitting frequency, which is the frequency with which people or the propensity of people to bullshit others is one question. And then the other question is the propensity of people to fall for bullshit. And those, though those overlap, there's separate questions. So I have some research that looks at why people engage in this in the first place, um, which probably some of my studies will have me dip my toes in the social psych waters more than, than other studies, because that's a, that's kind of a social interaction thing. Right. Um, but if we can figure out some of the things that contribute to people feeling like they need to bullshit others, then I think we can, we can, uh, solve one part of the problem. So like, especially in, um, there was a, there was a great study that came out like two years ago called, uh, uh, conspicuous communication or contemporary conspicuous communication, something. It was a joke of a title, but it was about the use of jargon. Um, and it found it, it, it used, um, it, it looked at uh, grad student dissertations, but it also looked at like workplace scenarios. And in those contexts, if people feel like they are in uh, a low status position, they're more likely to use jargon um, that's associated with, with, uh, with their industry, like academic jargon. This is why this is actually kind of related to the, when I laughed at myself for saying processes, because I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday um, that uh, I kind of consider, it, it's just weird that grad, grad students, psych grad students are the only ones who say biases and processes because it's processes and biases. But for some reason, when grad, when psych students get into graduate yeah. school, they start, they start pronouncing it biases and processes and nobody else does that and i was thinking about that paper because i'm like i wonder if they're doing it to sound more sciencey in a way it's kind of bullshitting to sound more sciencey and sound more you know impressive like you know people have uh d- different cognitive biases it just sounds fancier but it's that's not how the words pronounced. It's, it's interesting that you're that like what you're saying about the lower status you are like yeah. the more that you because i feel like the most jargony papers come from like gender and women's studies departments which are also the lowest status department yeah well they they found that people they actually found that people that were in um uh like lower ranked schools and i can't remember because it's been two years since i've read this paper i i don't know if they also looked at like specific departments or areas but they did find that people at, at lower ranked schools who were also uh from what i recall earlier in their their program would use more jargon and you know i I would think that people in the humanities because that's where a lot of like the so-called thing uh the Mm -hmm. the first socal or not the socal squared which i had issues with but the first legitimate socal thing was in the humanities and that's where a lot of postmodernist bullshit is um but yeah it reminded me of the processes and the biases and and another thing that just popped in my head, because I'm so random, because uh, you said perceivers, because in the same conversation I was having yesterday, I was joking that social psychologists are becoming uh, bigger bullshitters because, and I know it's related to social perception theory, but there seems to be this trend that is increasing over the past three years to call people social perceivers. <laughs> and they will say... <laughs> And that, that. That, that to me is an example of bullshitting, like persuasive bull. You're trying to sound, just say people. Because uh, I've, I've read this in like three or four different studies where they say, 
social perceivers rate it. They're just people. Wait, I'm like uh, I understand in social perceivers. I am I am on this soapbox right now and yeah. I refuse to get off of it. But it's just it reminds me, you know, speaking of humanities, um and and some of those like gender studies papers where they started um a couple of years ago I started to notice that they started referring to people as bodies. Which to me is just mm-hmm. dehumanized, like uh, white bodies, brown bodies, fat bodies. You know, wh- why are you calling them? Bo- they're people. To me, that just seemed dehumanizing. But jokingly, social psychology papers seem to be throwing in social perceivers instead of people. Um, I'm just just call them people. I, I don't say like I don't say you know goal oriented decisional uh, judgment makers. I say people in my studies. So I don't, I don't know. I just yeah. command F to my latest <laughs> manuscript. I did not use the phrase social perceivers, but I went with individuals quite often. Yeah, a lot of people use that too. I feel like would, it's okay if you, you want to mix it up a little bit, but um, um, I don't know. What is, what is hey, you, you know, Paul, I'm not going to call, I'm, I'm call you out because uh, this isn't my <laughs> podcast. I can do what I want. Look at, look at, because uh, I'm looking at it right now. Look at your website. <laughs> Okay. Oh no! <laughs> and look at what look what it says that you study. Oh dear! It's, uh, it says that you okay. study social perceivers. Um, oh my god! Uh, not just we have exposed Paul social perceivers' <laughs> responses. Oh my god! Social perceivers' response. People's responses. I'm interested Paul. in naturalistic social cognition. How to better study and model social perceivers' responses to complex naturalistic contexts. Yeah, you got me there. That is that is Jerry Cohen style unclarifiable unclarity bullshit right there. No, 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 no. no. It's a, you know what it means. You yeah, you know what it means. I know. It's just it's uh, it's just my hang up with the word jargon. social procedures. It's definitely jargon. Yeah. Um, what's your web address, Shane? <laughs> ShaneLitteral.com. Yeah, I have also noticed um, when I work with undergrads and, and their writing, like it's full of jargon and mm-hmm. these like pretentious sentences that like I read them and it, it honestly don't make any sense to me. Yeah. And I'm just like, no, just like write like a normal person. And, and, you know, don't you're not you don't need to that. That is what would be impressive. It's not impressive to be able to like write like yeah yeah and that's what like what i loved about that um that jargon paper the uh, whatever conspicuous communication paper I, i'm blanking out on it um because it overlaps so much with what i found about persuasive and evasive bullshitters um so persuasive bullshitting is negative related to self-esteem um i think evasive bullshitting might have been like slightly more it's also negative related and like thinking it's negative related to intelligence it's negative related to uh open-minded thinking and all of these things overlap, I think, quite well with the, the power, the power position findings of this other paper that people that, you know, if you have this, you know, unfortunate combination of being less of an analytic thinker and maybe not as not quite as smart and and also you have lower self-esteem and you feel lower sense of power, um, you're going to be you know, encouraged to engage in bullshitting more. And one of the things that Frankfurt said and that uh, John Petrocelli uh, had a good paper also that talked about this was people will also engage in bullshitting in situations in which they feel that they are obligated to share an opinion. Mm-hmm. So you can think about this again in like the business context. If you're in some meeting with the boss or, or even if you're in class, if you're a student and like the boss or the teacher calls on you and you have no idea what the answer is, 
but you don't want to get fired or you don't want to look stupid in front of the rest of the class. So you start just bullshitting. You start just pulling anything, you know, out of your butt that you can, that might sound impressive or might sound kind of correct. And again, that goes back to the kind of the, the self-esteem and the the power um, feelings that are associated with that. So, so yeah, I don't know what my Paul, point was, but it sounds good. <laughs> Paul, did you find anything incriminating on Shane's uh, website? <laughs> unfortunately not uh so um, you, you might you might unlock my linkedin page i'll tell you about a study that i'm getting ready to launch that i think is like the coolest study i've done but i'm also biased um it's on whether or not uh it's it's taking two two tax but the one that i'm concentrating on right now is whether or not uh corporate bullshitting um uh confers advantages in the selection and hiring process so um i have this this fake LinkedIn slash handshake kind of a profile thing set up. And I, you were talking about those generators earlier. I, I created my own bullshit generator of, um, of business bullshit. And it it's, I think it's neat because, you know, I think everything I do is neat. Um, it's neat because it produces bullshit from uh, a company's perspective, but it also co- produces it from an individual's perspective. And I've had this idea that I want to kind of start like a, a fake Twitter account and just not tell anybody and see how many followers I can get and just tweet out the bullshit every day. But I'll give you an, an example. Like, um, so from the company's, the company's standpoint, let me generate some here. Okay. Uh, we will go growth hack our can do attitude by joining with our high performing team driven corporate family members to better leverage our augmented business visualization. Um, and then like for a person. So what I did is the, the, the fake LinkedIn profile is populated with things from the person's perspective. Like, um, uh, I firmly believe that visionary focused magic happens when you execute energetic relationships. So that's all in, that's all populating things. So we have uh, some LinkedIn profiles that are just, you know, vanilla. I did this, you know, I'm a team person, whatever. And then we have some that are, excuse me, created with bullshit. And the, the idea is to give this to actual hiring managers, not a bunch of undergraduate students. Cause that always annoys me about this type of research it's always done on undergraduate students about who they would hire. And they've, most of them have never had a job, much less hired somebody. So this is for HR managers or anybody that's in a position to make hiring decisions. And what they're going to do is we're going to give them this. We're going to rate them for bullshit receptivity and, and several other traits. But we're going to show these um, LinkedIn profiles to them and have them rate them on different qualities that have been shown to predict performance. Like how intelligent do you think this person is? How conscientious do you think they are? You know, stuff like that. And also ask, um, you know, would you hire this person? If you had to make a decision right now, how likely would you be to hire this person? Um, and I, I don't know. I just get excited about studies like that because it would be cool. Yeah, because sounds, it, it'll uh, show whether it's... or not if, you, if you're able to speak the language. It, this, it's, it's based on this theory called um, um, uh, environmental fit. So there's person-person fit, person-company fit. But anyway, so it's, it's based on that. And if you can speak the language if uh i guess to put it another way if if corporate bullshit is sort of like a shibboleth for getting a job hmm. um hopefully the study will will show that and and maybe it's dependent on how receptive to business bullshit the hr manager is hmm. but it also uh yeah like i it sounded like it would work just from the example you you sent us but it it was also yeah, it might of, be my generator might be too good i might it was, <laughs> But it was also just sort of confounded with like 
skill with language, right? So like what, whatever the hell that was that you just said, it sounded a lot better. Like it just sounded a lot like a more complex sentence construction than I'm yep. a team player. Right. So like in, yeah, yeah. in, in that sense, it might work, but in a valid way in that it's sort of conveying, um, at least uh, a good vocabulary or something, or yeah, just yeah. like complex thought ab- ability to, you know, like come out with complex sentences and yeah, yeah, and that that goes back to getting back to the bullshitting a bullshitter paper. Uh, one of the things that I found because I did this several different ways, but people who are higher in persuasive bullshitting, and I don't want to focus just on that because I think this applies to this likely applies to people that are more bullshit receptive in general. They seemed to confuse superficial meaningfulness with inherent meaningfulness. So if something sounded meaningful just on first glance, to them, that meant that it actually was meaningful. Mm. Um, so for the business bullshit stuff, it's constructed just like the pseudo profound randomly. Like I, I, I created the yeah. algorithm. It randomly throws it together. If you read these sentences, it, they don't actually mean anything. Um, but I think that happens. Like you said, you know, Wait, not you've never Rachel, executed, but- a, executed an enthusiastic relationship. <laughs> but you know, uh, it kind just, of means something. It does actually yeah. mean something. Yeah. Kind it, of, yeah, does yeah. it, does I, it though? Um, <laughs> that, that's why, honestly, that's why I, I said that the generator might be too good because I read some of these sentences and I'm like, wait, if I think about that long enough, it actually starts yeah, to mean something. Yeah. So I like might that, need I need I might need to make my bullshit a little bullshittier, but but the point is if somebody like in a hiring position if they're just it, are they really intently looking at the quality of what's there, or are they just doing this superficial superficial assessments mm-hmm. um, almost like a matching heuristic kind of a thing, mm-hmm. to where you're like oh this person like I said it's kind of like a shibboleth this person speaks our language it looks like mm. I don't know what the hell they're saying but it sounds really impressive and it mm. sounds like what the CEO of Starbucks says so mm. therefore they must be really good um but so you know, in, I mean but, in, and like, that's kind of how misinformation spreads in the first place it just seems impressive until you dig down down deep yeah it's interesting because I mean in in some settings it, it may actually be a genuinely valuable skill to yeah. be good if, at if you're, in, right? like you're in sales. Like, yeah, I was going to say, if you're in sales, like going back to the, you know, again, not picking on car salesmen, but the old stereotype of used car salesmen, you may not like some of the techniques that you stereotypically people think they have. It works for them, though. They make mm-hmm. the sale. It's an advantage. So mm-hmm. it's sort of like when we, when we were talking about like predicting predicting job performance and hiring people, um, the 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 research shows that certain personality characteristics like conscientiousness um, and and integrity tend to positively predict job performance, but it depends on the job. So if somebody is super conscientious um, for one particular type, like if you're an accountant, you might need to be super conscientious because you got to look at all the numbers and stuff. But if you're working at you know. Uh, I don't know if you're if you're working in waste disposal. Well, that might need conscientious. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are other jobs where something like extroversion uh, mm-hmm. and agreeableness might be a lot more important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in some contexts, bullshitting might be bad, but in other contexts, if if you're good at it, and again, this is if you're good at it, mm-hmm. um, it might be advantageous to you. So, and and that's another thing that I want to dig into because bullshitting itself, I think it's an 
you know, it's, it's probably for society, a net negative, but it would be interesting to find out if there are situations in which um, it really is more advantageous for that person and kind of explore those more. There was a paper that came out that tried to make the, the, the argument that bullshitting was a sign of intelligence. And I have, you know, I, all, my, all the love in the world for the people that did that study, but I just have some, some issues with it. Um, mm-hmm. So, but I do think that to be able to create effective bullshit, you probably have to be more intelligent, especially since bullshitting in general is negatively related to intelligence, but to be really good at it, you probably have to be really smart. Mm-hmm. And my research so far, and this is just because this is just what I focused on has not focused on good bullshitters yet. It's, it's focused on the ones that we know of, like, like the Trumps of the world, the ones that are obvious. And I think it will be really interesting. And this maybe needs to, might be where the, the research needs to go at some point is looking at the people that are really good at it and in the context where they're really good at it and what kind of benefits it confers on them. Anyway. Um, I'm glad I just brought you to silence. <laughs> I, gotta Rachel, I gotta let Rachel talk sometimes. So this is, I'm going to be like, no, that's, I, I think I've, I've had uh, my fair share this pod, but um, one thing that I was curious about <laughs> was whether like sort of the relationship between bullshitting skill and improv skills and whether oh, like to what extent is bullshitting like to what extent are people improvising when they're bullshitting or is it more like thought out and yeah, or are yeah, people just so, like talking and you know, who knows what will happen. I, I think in, I think in most cases it's, it's extemporaneous. So you got to do it on the spot. So, I, I mean, you, you bring up a really good point though, um, that the people that do it and ex- extemporaneous, so it's, it's right there on the spot and you just have to come up with it. Um, the people that we see that are bullshitters, are the ones that are bad at it. I, I wonder if, if again, I'm not, I'm not in social. Um, so maybe some people from social want to be co-authors with me and help me out um, or just do the study without me and just cite me. Um, but if there's a way to measure like improv skills um, with, without like a dumb proxy, like, oh, we gave them a self-report scale on creativity. But I mean, something that's, that could really behaviorally maybe measure improv skills and and intelligence because like i said intelligence would likely need to be part of that because to have good improv skills you very likely need to have a very good working memory yeah um isn't there aren't there studies on like the relationship there's like studies that look at jazz musicians right um and like their you know brain regions that are associated with that sort of like creativity um and i think like that you know it's all there's a lot there that yeah, i'm yeah. not an expert on but i kind of know a little bit about um it seems like yeah it'd be interesting to see what you know jazz musicians improv comedians and bullshitters yeah, yeah. have in common there's like no, some that overlap sounds, there yeah no that sounds that actually sounds really interesting um i think that would that would be a bit too because it's um not to not to draw like lines, not to say that I need to stay in my lane, um, but I probably need to stay in my lane. That seems a bit too social for me. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is I don't have as broad of a knowledge of the social psych like literature and the different areas of it to be able to even, I, I would probably not be able to competently study that question because I just don't know enough. But that sounds, if anybody's out there that wants to do it, go for it. Because I think that'd be really cool. Um, I do have a... I ha- 
this is the last thing I say, and then you guys can talk about stuff to get me canceled, I guess. Um, I do have a study. Uh, you probably can't. I have a big, long like list of studies. One of them that I haven't gotten to launch yet, just because I'm in process of shifting jobs, is on uh, the idea of self-bullshitting. And I don't know if you've seen any of the literature on self-persuasion. Um, it's, it's there, but it's not as active as it used to be. But basically, there were, there were studies that showed like you could take people like the, uh, that were in debate clubs or about to debate something. There, a lot of the studies involved giving uh, debates. And you could get somebody to argue for a position they disagree with. And arguing for a position they disagree with was found in some of these studies to actually not hugely move their attitudes, but significantly move their attitudes to being more for or more in support of that. And I was watching my favorite show, one of my favorite shows in the world, Hot Ones on, on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen that, but they it's celebrity interviews. And um, what they do is they have the, the celebrities eat increasingly spicy hot wings with every question to try to make their mouths burn so much that it throws off their whole, you know, public relations kind of a thing. And they can get like real answers. I actually was going to do my dissertation that way in the Q&A. And my supervisors had agreed to it, but then COVID hit and we had to do it online. But anyway, yeah, so one of the that's how we should have run this pod. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the episodes had Paul Rudd on it, and the and the other thing about that's great about this show is the host Sean Evans asks just really great questions, like really insightful questions, and not the you know tell me about your film. Like he really does his homework on these people. So he was asking Paul Rudd, you know, when you're doing like a press junket for for like a movie or something. You often get asked like, you know, these trite banal questions. And when you answer them, you have to share like a, an interesting or funny story from your life. And in those press junkets, basically you have to tell that story like 20 or 30 times because you're sitting in that chair and, you know, the interviewer comes in and asks their questions and they leave the room. And then the next interviewer comes in and asks a lot of the same questions. So he's asking Paul Rudd, over the years, as you've told, as you've answered the same questions over and over and over again, you, you probably have to embellish a little bit, you know, to keep it interesting, or maybe you don't remember all the details. And, you know, we all know that memory is constructed. So every time you, every time you recall a memory, you change it because your, your brain is filling in little details. So he's like, the more you tell these stories, and they likely change over, over the years, he says, do you get to a point where you can't remember the difference between what the true original thing that actually happened was and this embellished, exaggerated, convoluted narrative that you've created over the years. And, you know, Paul Rudd was like, that's a really great question. And I sat there and I was like, that's a really great question. Because in, you know, I'm always thinking about research. In there's this idea that some people have that um, you can bullshit unintentionally. Um, that's completely false. And I'll say right now, any of you, any of any of the other bullshit researchers that are listening to this right now, come at me, bro. You cannot unintentionally engage in an intentional act. However, based on the bullshitting a bullshitter thing, people who are more likely to bullshit are more likely to believe bullshit. But it's always coming from an outside source, right? But if you're bullshitting, you're creating the bullshit. And it makes me think, so, so one aspect of that is if a bullshitter who falls for bullshit encounters bullshit and they believe that it's true, 
but then they bullshit it. You know, they're adding more misinformation because that's just the type of person they are. That that gets into something that I call bullshit amplification. So there's a there's a risk there that a bullshitter that falls for bullshit makes the bullshit in, even worse, sort of like a snowball going down like a, a, a snowy mountain. So I had this idea of, and this is based on somebody I know, and I'm not going to say the name, but somebody who bullshits a lot, do they eventually get to the point where they can't remember? Because you have to, if, if you're a big bullshitter, you're, it's like, it's like lying. You know, like you tell one lie, you have to tell like 20 more. If you tell one bullshit story, you might wind up having to t- tell that same bullshit story. And you might get like, like, like lose how you're keeping track of it. So anyway, so my question is that I'm getting ready to do is can someone bullshit themselves um, unintentionally? So this is based on something called the illusion of truth effects. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but it's also another mechanism by which misinformation gets spread. So that's the finding that the more we're exposed to information, whether or not it's true or false, the more favorable our views come of it. So like if, if I were to give you misinfor- something that's true or false, it could be misinformation or truth. And I ask you to rate like how profound it is or how accurate it is or whatever I have asked you to rate it on, something positive. You rate it. If I expose you to that same information repeatedly, your ratings are going to go up because you're going to start having this almost like a, a recognition memory kind of a thing um, to where the more you see it and recognize it, the the more inflated your inflated your ratings of it become. So it's called the illusion of truth. So I was thinking if somebody produces bullshit and they have to do it, they're exposed to their own bullshit over and over again. Do they eventually start to believe it or, or start to believe that it's more accurate? So I have a whole paradigm set up where I'm going to get people to produce bullshit and then I'm going to expose them to their own bullshit. I'm going to hide it in other stuff that they have to evaluate and see if their ratings, their truth ratings for their own bullshit, which they should know is bullshit, if the ratings of that go up over time because of repeated exposure. I'm weird. I think about bullshit like all the time and how to trick people. So anyway, I'm done with that. Let's, you know, cancel me or whatever now. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) So uh, I I guess this is a, becomes a somewhat regular segment on our show is uh, trying to cancel our guests. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we were going to try to find whatever controversial things happening on Twitter this week and, see what your yeah. take is on it y'all got uh y- y'all got ethan with like the big ones like you talked about autism and like all all kinds of stuff uh yeah. last time <laughs> yeah i don't know i haven't seen much myself but paul have you uh come across anything that you want to talk about yeah kind of um so did you see the thomas chatterton williams yep saga play out over twitter okay I, so- are you are you, are, are you referring to the tweet with the the MIT student or what led up to that? Well, both, I guess. So like, it's it just, just the whole thing's kind of interesting to me. So um, this, I guess, online magazine Gorka published yeah. a story uh, that was just very, very sort of sloppy and not fact-checked where they claimed that Thomas Chatterton Williams, I think was at some movie premiere in, Texas. Yeah, at, at the premiere of a mo- of a documentary about Alex Jones. About um, Alex Jones. I, I think yeah. it was in Texas. Yeah. So then, sort of 
Chatterton Williams complains on Twitter about this, says this is completely false and potentially libelous. And then, you know, a lot of sort of heterodox figures were sort of pointing to it as like, look at the look at the sloppy standards and what these people are doing to just sort of slander this guy because of tribalism uh, or whatever. I, I saw um, Jesse Single posted about it. Um, shout out to Jesse. He's been on the pod before. Uh, uh, he's a good guy but yeah like so i mean he's often sort of beating the drum about journalistic standards dropping and stuff like that and then it sort of comes out there was some leaked memo or email from higher ups at gawker basically saying almost giving the go-ahead to do this kind of thing just saying yeah, he, he's like, on yeah. he's on basically like their shit list of, of people to attack yeah they have a shit list and it's just like yeah these people we've decided for whatever reason they're fair game so just you know publish whatever negative pieces you can uh, about them um and then you know that that started a whole other round of uh look what these people are doing they don't care about the truth they don't have journalistic standards yada 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 but then uh a grad student from mit decides to just make a joke on twitter about yeah. this and I thought the joke was interesting on a number of levels. So like, um, I don't have it in front of me, but just from memory, it was something like, I actually think it's really funny that Gorka would make up a fake story about Thomas Chatterton Williams. And I think they should do it with all the other IWP, IDW people. Yeah. Um, they should say that Barry Weiss walked in somewhere and scrolled cancelled uh in lipstick on a mirror in some establishment anyway, i can't yeah. remember the rest of the, the rest of the joke anyway yeah then chatterton williams quote tweets this grad student and says this this person attends mit i guess like yeah. he saw it it pissed him off and then obviously like a lot of his followers come for her and are criticizing her and like saying yeah like you you i don't know she claimed that people were telling her she should kill the, herself i didn't i didn't see that um i, I looked through it and i didn't see any of that either but maybe if that's true because you know that that claim gets thrown around a lot somebody says something that people don't like there's mm -hmm. always the you know i'm getting death threats and okay well provide evidence of them i don't have to provide evidence to you so maybe yeah. maybe she did i found like I, like i understand like okay so gawker is a garbage organization full of garbage people um, it already went bankrupt and I wish it di still didn't exist. I don't know why. I, I think it was Univision or somebody bought it and that's why they're still around, but their entire shtick is to just go They're They're a tabloid rag of the bottom of the worst kind. And their shtick is just to go after people. Um, so I, they go after people that, you know, I don't like, um, and people that are, I don't know if they've gone after anybody that I do like, but even when they go after the people that I, like, I generally don't like, it's still really unfair. And what they do is like really scummy and, you know, cause there's plenty of, there's plenty of reasons to criticize people. Um, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't make an entire story about, um, out at like Peter Thiel, like, I guess this was like 10 years ago, like outing Peter Thiel. Like, think of how much they would, quote unquote, get canceled <laughs> these days if they if they outed uh, an LGBT person. But they did to him and he's a conservative. So it was OK. Hmm. Um, or publishing a sex tape of um, of Hulk Hogan, which that's what got them sued uh, into oblivion. It, imagine if they did that to, you know, to Taylor Swift. Hmm. You know, would everybody think it was cool? So they have gotten a lot away with 
like garbage human behavior because they attack people on quote unquote the wrong side. Um, with with Thomas, I can understand like they went after him, and I don't like I see his stuff on Twitter every now and then. He's he's not a conservative really. He's middle of the road. Um, he's a little bit of a bullshitter. He's I, I haven't pseudo profound at times. I don't know if yeah yeah yeah. Well, I I, I will give you like, that. Mm-hmm. He's he started. I don't even know if it's still around, but he's. I, I completely understand why he was mad about the Gawker thing because uh, it was just complete. Uh, I don't want to say complete bullshit because that doesn't fit my definition. But it was lies. It was not fact check. Gawker's you know a garbage organization. So I can understand him being upset about that. But then this girl just made a joke. It was a bad joke. I went through her Twitter feed and she just, she seems like she's maybe trying to bring back the edgelord Twitter stuff of like a decade ago. I don't know, but she's just making jokes. She's just being kind of in your face. He could have just been like, Hey, Mia culpa. Sorry. I was just overly sensitive today because of all this shit that's gone on, but no, he's just calling her out. Then of course everybody has to dogpile and just I hate Twitter so much. <laughs> yeah, most of what I saw, I mean, I only saw this after Paul sent it, but it uh, was people piling on on him for, like, re- responding to her and, like, saying, like, dude, what are you yeah. doing? You know, it's just a joke. Like, and- nobody in this situation, at least in this specific one with him, quote, treating her, nobody in this situation comes out looking like, or smelling like roses. Like, there's, it's just Twitter. Just, you know, what, what yeah, do the kids yeah. say? What did kids say? Touch grass, like go, you know. Yeah, we learned yeah. that last last week. And uh, that base. I was gonna, uh, I was gonna see if you guys know what uh, cap and no cap means, but that's the other. Yeah, I, I do. I don't know. That's what the yeah, one I was hoping right, cool. Ethan would give to us, and like I was cap ready to and answer no cap. the question, and then he he's like based and cringed, and we, he yes, yeah, straight cap. I know what no cap means. What <laughs> does cap and no cap mean? Uh, like it, cap cap means. Uh, uh cap means that you're not uh, being honest uh no cap means that you're 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 being blunt you're being straightforward you're being honest and from what i understand you know because because obviously you know as uh approaching middle-aged white guy from tennessee i obviously have my finger on the pulse of you know uh, pop culture and and hip-hop and stuff but it come it, didn't it come from something like um some people that would have like fake caps on their teeth versus like real caps. And like, you could like the cap would come off and you'd see it was something like that. I don't, I don't know. It had something to do with like actual, like gold and diamond encrusted caps on teeth. I don't know. I'm ignorant. Um, but it it, it was, it has something to do with teeth that I I do know that. So I know what it means and I know it has something to do with teeth, but, uh, I would have to like look at, we used to say bust I'll bust a cap in your ass. Yeah, it's totally different. This is the the totally cap, the decorative caps cap. on your teeth. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm older than you, so I remember what we used head. to say in the '80s too. So, um, yeah. So I, I just thought it was an interesting episode. Like she, like I'd say, like she's kind of this archetype of one of my least favorite people, like yeah. in academia and on academic Twitter, because you know, like everything is just through this intense tribal lens and like even the joke yeah. is like it's funny because fuck these people like they don't yeah, yeah. they don't deserve like they don't deserve like journalistic integrity because you know i mean thomas chatterton williams i don't know what he's done i didn't listen to his show i know he uh he definitely interviewed brianna joy gray who's more who's oh more yeah no she, I, I think she had him on her podcast oh, okay mm-hmm. right right yeah, yeah. Wow. 
I, I like I like her. I like her podcast is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the and she just also just seems really smart and really good at Twitter, right? Like just yeah. very and like so she was kind of like it seemed to me just sort of winning this troll battle with Thomas Chatterton Williams, even though like he wasn't he because I think like sometimes if one person's trying to be serious and the other person's just keeps sort of making jokes and stuff like yeah. that, it's, it can be like a dynamic that you just like, he can't really win in that situation. Yeah. And then, and so she was sort of like lampooning him of like, <laughs> wait, doesn't he have more important people to worry about or something like that? And, and then she was, I saw one tweet. She was like, I've been on Twitter six months and I already have 5,000 followers at this rate. I'll have more followers than Thomas Chatterton Williams. And like, <laughs> the bear. Like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like, I don't know, like just her behavior and the original joke, like in all seriousness was a good example of the kind of tribal sort of thinking uh, that sort of gets a pass in academic circles. And I actually saw a bunch of high profile people from psychology sort of coming in and defending her and defending like the joke and stuff like that. Um, Which is, you know, I like, I found that, I found that interesting. And I, and I, I mean, yeah, like, you can try to be sort of po-faced about it and say, well, yeah, like, but, you know, just because this guy has political opinions you disagree with doesn't mean it should be okay to lie about him. But, and like, but this idea that, well, it's just a joke. It's not a joke in the sense that she doesn't believe yeah. that it's actually funny to lie about Thomas Chatterton Williams. Like nobody's laughing at it saying, oh, well, she's obviously being sarcastic and she actually thinks it is a serious issue to like print like deliberately false things. It's funny because she, no, no, it's funny to people because they actually do think fuck these people and they don't deserve like journalistic integrity. Yeah. I think anyway, like I don't think it's a joke in the sense that she's saying that because she actually does object to what Gorka did. I think she's yeah. sort of just playing up this insouciance about it because, she, no, she actually doesn't. And she knows that in the, in sort of academic spaces, that's what's cool and that's what gets clout and that's what gets you to 5,000 followers in six months and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, she was just tweeting as a social perceiver, right? No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's but yeah, I mean, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I hate the Twitter. This is why I hate Twitter. I'm only really on there to try to try to advertise my my research when i can and just you know post interesting sciencey things i try to stay out of the drama because i hate drama but and this is why twitter is a garbage dump because it's mostly just drama and so few people are on there 10 percent uh the top 10 percent of twitter users are responsible for 92 percent of the content on twitter and the those that 10 percent 70 percent of them um identify as uh at least somewhat or extremely liberal, 65% of them, I just happen to know this because I did a talk on it, 65% of them are women. You know, they're younger. So it's basically just a bunch of ultra-progressive women arguing with each other. <laughs> but but my thing is, there, who cares? He's on there, like, there's the mute button, there's the block button, he sees that, he's amplifying it. She's got like 5,000 followers. It's a dumb joke. Nobody knows who she is except for her followers on Twitter. He's got what tens of thousands of followers. Oh yeah, just, I d- definitely think he should not have. Yeah, yeah just like in his own self-interest. Like, again, I and I hate to use that lame, you know, like the kids say, touch grass, but just sign up, log off. Who cares? Like he, the people that get in, involved in stuff like this have like the whiniest little 
hurt feelings on both sides. Like, you know, one group's calling the other snowflake and they're calling them snowflakes. You're all snowflakes. Just stop. Log off. Press mute. Who cares what this person says? I think I've figured out the solution and I've uh, fixed my Twitter feed in the past couple (laughs) of weeks by I started liking and following dog accounts. And now like 90% (laughs) of my Twitter feed is just cute puppies. And like, it's great. Highly yeah. recommend. Ten out of ten. Yeah, I just I don't know. Some <laughs> one some one of them is getting canceled eventually. Wait till Halloween. Wait till the Halloween costumes, and then uh, oh boy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there is sometimes like I've run into the the issue of like sometimes you know there there is this there is this sense when you get on Twitter like you want to get followers right because you want people to see especially if you're in academia you, you want people to see if you're sharing sciencey stuff you're sharing stuff about your research you want people to see it. So at the beginning in the early stages somebody follows you. Oh my God, I'm going to follow you back. And I got into the, you know, I did that at first and I got into this, this, like, I guess, um, I don't know, f- f- fell down a hole or something, but I got into this situation where I'm, I'm following people. I don't really know them. Um, I see that they're at some other university or that they, they are, are a reporter or they do this and that, you know, definitely not like, I, I don't accept, uh, I, I don't follow people that look like obvious, like trolls or bots or whatever. But I got into this issue where I'm following people and eventually my whole feed is, is I didn't realize how like, you know, I guess ideologically fundamentalists they are. And like I said, I hate fundamentalists on, on any side of any issue because they're always, almost always lunatics. But apparently I, I inadvertently followed a few people that were, I I don't want to say very far right, but they were far right in the sense that it, it was like, okay, um, not Chatterston Williams. It was uh, Brett Weinstein when he first came out. Like this is like 2017. Um, I signed up for Twitter like 2018. I followed him, and at first he started saying reasonable things, and then he went off the deep end, and I had to unfollow him. So he's an example on the right, and then other people that I followed, and again people from like other universities and stuff, their their likes and their comments and stuff pop up in my feed, which I hate. Um, but I, I didn't realize the extent to which these people were just a stereotype. Um, you know, the type that probably wear like really thick rimmed black glasses and have purple hair and like to like, just all they do is dogpile and insult people and you're an istophobe or whatever. And I had to like unfollow them because you got to curate your timeline. My thing is, is like with Chatter Chatterton, I want to keep on saying Chatterston, Chatterton Williams is curate your timeline, dude. If somebody tags you in something like, look what this person said, who cares? Water off the duck's back. Get on with your life. Like, it's just the only people that you should care about who, whether they like you is, is your boss because they could fire you. <laughs> like your, your spouse, your partner, your kids, your puppy, like I, your family, who cares what these I don't know. Uh, maybe yeah, I'm well, just being like old fashioned uh, about it, but it just, I don't know, man. I just, I hate the, I, I hate the political, the ideological polarization and anybody on Twitter can curate their timeline to avoid that. The ones who, the ones who don't are the ones who, no matter what they say, they want the drama. And I don't want the drama. Jatterson <laughs> Williams obviously wants the drama. He wants all the smoke. So this this segment of the podcast right. seems to always end in the same advice, which is touch grass. <laughs> exactly. So everybody, touch some grass. I really have to go. Uh, thank you so much, Shane. Yeah, yeah. thanks for coming on. 
Yeah, it was fun. I'm glad I got to be on this because, uh, you know, no cap. You guys are <laughs> actually one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to. It's it's like you you guys and Four Beers, or the Two Psychos, Four Beers, and um, like maybe one or two others. And awesome. You guys are up there. Thanks so yeah. much. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See you.